0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We're dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of June 2019, and this is episode 117. On today's programme... Dr William Butler, Outreach Officer and Associate Lecturer at the University of Kent, talks about the post-war mutinies in the British Army. This lecture was given as part of the Antrim and Down Branches Spring Conference on the Consequences of War, held on the 9th of May 2019.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Tom. Um, Lovely, thank you. Um, Thank, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me here the, this afternoon. It's, it's actually quite unusual in a, a way for me to not be talking about Ireland for most of this talk. That's normally, when, I'm, when I've when i been here in the past to, um, to to do talks here at Peroni, uh, it's normally talking about the Irish Amateur Military Tradition or Irish recruitment in some way. And today I'm sort of moving on um, a little bit to one of my sort of pet projects that I developed um, over... Uh, the last few years, which um, has been labelled and characterised as the British Army mutinies in 1919. I'm going to call them the demobilisation strikes um, in 1919 um, throughout the course of the paper, but um, I think they were mutinies. I'm I'm sort of going with really what the authorities uh, characterised them as, at least anyway. Um, and it's a bit—it's a bit of a whistle stop tour, really, of of 1919 and that period um, immediately after the First World War. And what really drew me to this subject was, well, you know, the war ends in November 1918, and what happens with that um, massive citizen uh, army in in those uh, the years after? Um, and really, that's what sort of led me to to looking at these strikes. So I'll start with. Um, Hague, why not? Um, So in a a memorandum to the War Cabinet in October 1917, so over a year before uh, the signing of the armistice, Hague wrote the following... Immediately, hostilities cease. We must be prepared for a general relaxation of the bonds of discipline. Men's minds, energies, and thoughts will no longer be occupied by the task of defeating and destroying the enemy, but will trend naturally towards early return home. Hence, as soon as demobilization commences, a feeling of jealousy will arise. Men will keenly watch the departures of others and will institute comparisons as to their respective claims. There will be generally an unsettled state and as the natural consequences of a prolonged and arduous war, nerves will be in an irritable and an unstable condition. We have, therefore, to realise that the temper of the troops during this period will be a factor not to be lightly disregarded. So Haig wrote this in response to uh, the draft plans for military demobilisation, which have been um, they, they've been drawing those plans up actually since 1916. And these plans specified that men would leave the army based on their occupation assessed on the economic needs of the country, and not uh, judged by the length of their service. While stating that he understood that these requirements, uh, he, he understood these requirements, he believed that the disciplinary side of demobilization had not been given sufficient attention. In a rebuttal letter, he was told that the economy must take precedence and that, quote, powerful aid to the maintenance of discipline in France will be afforded by the knowledge that any active in discipline will, in accordance with the regulations which have been drafted to carry out the scheme of demobilisation, entail delay in the man's return to this country. After the turbulent... A uh, few months of strikes and collective disobedience. Sorry, well that's not working. There we go. Uh, in the armed forces, following the cessation of hostilities in November 1918, uh, this memorandum resurfaced uh, and was presented once more to the cabinet in February 1919 by Winston Churchill, the newly appointed Secretary of State for War. As a supplement to it, Churchill stated that, quote, it will be seen that he, Haig, forecasted accurately the state of indiscipline and disorganisation which would arise in the army if favouritism were to rule in regard to the discharge of men. Additionally, that it was, quote, surprising that the commander-in-chief's transient warnings were utterly ignored and the army left to be irritated and almost convulsed by a complicated artificial system open at every point to suspicion of jobbery and humbug. There was certainly no no doubting Haig's knowledge of the army under his command and the risk that demobilisation had on the prospect of a breakdown in discipline. And it's this in, in discipline that I'm going to talk uh, to you about today. To show this, and again mainly due to limitations of time, I'm going to give you a few examples uh, of some of these strikes um, and how the authorities dealt with um, the soldiers striking. What I'd like to argue, and hopefully this becomes clear, is that very few soldiers had any political motivation, the idea that the British soldier is no Bolshevik. Their service and therefore their discipline uh, during the war was conditional and couldn't last beyond the end of hostilities. Primarily, they were citizen soldiers, both volunteers and conscripts alike, uh, and they'd been inculcated with the belief that their discipline came from their patriotism and especially their self-sacrifice. They felt that by November 1918 they had carried out, uh, they'd sort of demonstrated enough patriotism and carried uh, enough self-sacrifice to justify their immediate demobilisation and therefore discipline was no longer relevant to them. So throughout 1917 and 1918, though reaching to the point of mutiny uh, at Etapla, unrest was relatively minor. This doesn't mean that fears didn't exist, especially within the context of the Russian Revolution. Concerns about the fragile nature of indiscipline and the potential uh, Bolshevist influence on soldiers had surfaced when uh, soldiers and workers' councils had been formed in 1917. In July in that year, Lord Derby had stated to the War Cabinet, quote, in view of the fact that the army of today is by no means as highly disciplined as that in existence before the war, and also that the classes of men serving at the present moment include individuals of every shade of education and opinion, it is probable that the moment to encourage, um, the movement to encourage soldiers to take part in political questions will be fanned by certain political factions for their own ends." Historian Chris Wrigley has suggested that it's really no surprise that leading members of the government expressed concern about the spread of Bolshevism in Britain and that the potential for unrest uh, in the armed forces only accentuated these fears. Though unfounded, these fears certainly informed decision-making and were exacerbated by the the sort of focused effort by elements of the labour movement in particular to enlist support from the armed forces once strikes had broken out. For an establishment already suspicious of trade unionism, this must have been an alarming development. And as we shall see, the printed press, especially the Daily Mail and the Daily Herald, did little to help in these matters. Overall, soldiers and institutions such as the press towed the line, as they had done for much of the war. But the system of demobilisation and the consequences of its perceived unjust nature placed the continued good discipline of the British Army in doubt, For much of 1919 so to think about early trouble really as I said plans for demobilization had actually been underway since 1916 so it's not as if the authorities were caught unprepared uh, really when the armistice was signed on the 11th of November 1918 many soldiers were caught by surprise though and in contrast to the scenes at home reactions were relatively muted on um, the front line So Charles Carrington recalled that, quote, victory was sudden and complete, and the general sensation was that of awakening from a nightmare. Percy Crozier stated that though men and women all over the world, quote, went mad, the fighting men fresh from the line thanked God for delivery. George Jameson even went as far as to say that once the initial shock had subsided, he had had the feeling of having been sacked and kicked out of a job. It essentially made him feel like he had been made redundant. Others recalled awe, great relief, bewilderment and shock at the speed of the German collapse. Rapid demobilization soon became a rallying cry during the election, uh, the general election in december nineteen eighteen. Newspapers made the made it uh, really or sort of made the business of demobilisation theirs. And the Daily Mail, uh, which had labelled itself for much of the war as the soldiers' newspaper, ran a daily column, which I showed a, a moment ago in the previous slide, entitled "Dilly Dally," which gave exhaustive examples of demobilisation delays. The authorities had devised a priority system, which, driven by the needs of the peacetime uh, economy, would be how the army would be demobilised. The first soldiers were, uh, to be released would be so-called demobilizers, those who performed tasks in civilian life which would speed up the demobilization of others. These would be followed by so-called pivotal men who could provide employment for others. Thirdly, there were so-called slip men, labelled as such because of the slips of paper that authorized their demob- demobilization, and they essentially were individuals who could pr- prove that they had a job waiting for them once they were demobilised and returned to civilian life. After these groups, a general demobilisation could occur. And it was the third category, the the Slipmen, which was to provide the catalyst for some of the early unrest in early 1919, um, because the Slipmen were quite often, uh, they're not exclusively, but quite often those who had entered the army later on in the war. So the first major trouble uh, occurred at Folkestone on the 3rd of January. According to some reports, upwards of 10,000 men refused to attend parade, having held a meeting the previous day, and, and also, importantly, declined to embark on boats bound for France. Instead, the large body of men uh, marched to Folkestone Town Hall, which is that building in, in the background there, um, and paid a visit to the mayor of Folkestone, Uh Speeches then were made of what was uh, the press reported as a moderate tone, um, claiming that many applications for demobilisation were being ignored, despite men having jobs waiting for them. By the evening of the 3rd, the situation had been resolved when military officials, which with, with the approval of the War Office, had decided that rather than proceed with disciplinary measures against the men, they would be given time to explain and and to prepare their their own individual situations. As I say, the men were dealt with individually. Those with contracts for work were immediately demobilised, those with contracts which were not quite fully in order were permitted an additional week's leave, Uh, and those who had no uh, prospects of a contract were um, sent back to their unit, sent back to France. Lord Milner, who was at that time still the Secretary of State for War, wrote to David Lloyd George stating that these concessions were the best way out of a bad business. It seemed then as if the disturbances were quick over as quickly as um, they had began, but this leniency very, very quickly um, came back to haunt the authorities. So within 24 hours, in fact, other strikes swept across the country, beginning in Dover, so just down the road, Um, Army Service Corps men stationed at Osterley Park drove to Whitehall um, to put their case directly to the Prime Minister. One participant told a reporter that, quote, "...we have been informed that our branch of the service would be the last to be demobilised. Most of us have had over two years in France and have been wounded." In the week following the demonstration at Folkestone, uh, using um, the historian Andrew Rothstein's uh, thorough accounts of the strikes um, across Great Britain, a very conservative estimate puts the number of soldiers striking as a result of demobilisation delays at just over 52,000, which is is about 1.5% of men under arms. While only a fraction of the total, it's unsurprising that the authorities were concerned. When men of the Army Service Corps... Uh, descended on Whitehall from camps on the outskirts of London, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Henry Wilson, wrote to uh, Lord Derby stating that, The heart of the present troubles in the army lies in the reckless speeches and promises made during the recent elections, and in constant civilian and therefore ignorant and dangerous interference in our demobilisation scheme. Exactly where we are drifting, for we are drifting, I don't know. At the present moment, there are rows of lorries outside this office and 1,000 lorrymen up from Kempton with demands of sorts. One thing is certain, that unless the Prime Minister buckles and makes it clear that he and the government are solid behind the war office and the officers of the army, we shall lose the army and then the navy and then the air force. The ignorant civilians that, uh, to which Wilson were, was referring were undoubtedly, I think, elements of the press. So when reporting the first strikes, the Daily Mail under the headline Brainless Demobilisation stated that Sir Eric Geddes had, quote, so far successfully evaded the rope and lamppost that are said to await the politician who fails in his task and that the red tabs were responsible for the blundering at Folkestone and elsewhere. Furthermore, that, quote, the lack of brains and of foresight displayed by the War Office is interfering with the restoration of national trade and prosperity, and that owing to the abundant respect which officials have for one another and their capacity for taking as long as possible to do nothing, we doubt whether even Folkestone will prove to be a sufficient awakening to them. And really, from these first strikes, what you get from the authorities is attempts to uh, damage control. So immediately after the first wave of strikes, military censors put a stop to all, or pretty much all, reporting of these disturbances across the country. They just disappear from newspapers in particular. And this clearly influenced the stance uh, of the Daily Mail. So the day after the vitriolic article about demobilisation, a more uh, moderate article commented under the headline Steady that, quote, aroused at last by the protests of newspapers and the public, the authorities are taking action to remedy the delays and individual injustices of demobilisation. They have met with good-humoured demonstrations of the soldiers tactfully and in the right spirit. The men will gain nothing further by organised unrest. Their common sense will tell them that any indiscipline will only prejudice the efforts to improve and speed up the machinery. While not condemning the men for striking, the tone was clearly one of conciliation, urging men to respect authority. For the Sir George lansbury Own Herald, a left-wing newspaper, however, the tone remained rather belligerent. The strikes were, in fact, what its front page described as the Great Mutiny. It was sheer, this is a quote, it was sheer, flat, brazen, open and successful mutiny. They, the soldiers, knew it and they did it. For the newspaper's special correspondence, who was apparently in Folkestone, this was born because of incomprehensible forms and red tape. Trade unionists had been elected as officials for a new soldier's union, a point stressed by the paper. Now was not the time for conciliation, in their view, it was time for action. During the following week, the paper noted how, quite, quote, a great silence had descended upon the capitalist press. Rather insightfully, in some ways, articles stated that the troubles had come from the government and that the government, uh, the, what they labelled as the government press had only themselves to thank. A month previously, they had been, quote, vociferously denouncing Dilly and Dally. The Prime Minister was promising that things should be speeded up and that now they were solemnly lecturing the troops on the virtues of keeping steady. Despite claims made by the Herald, feelings of jealousy and frustration do appear to have existed. In his memoir, John Jackson stated that the thought of so many old companions, quote, gradually dwindling away from the regiment made the remainder of us feel restless. George Ashurst claimed that the vast majority of soldiers got the army out of their minds and simply wished to leave. The thought of staying was not favourable. Roland Fielding wrote to his wife in early February that, quote, the raging desire still continues to be demobilised quickly. Nevertheless, I feel pretty sure that for many there will be pathetic disillusionment. Even as early as December 1918, William Andrews wrote that it was a great grievance with us that munition workers were at once freed to get what jobs were now going whilst we were kept in the army. Furthermore, that quote, one feels a little suspicious of the army authorities. They seem in no hurry to give up their power over the millions of soldiers who have not the slightest intention of serving again once they get out of khaki. He concluded that, Thousands of officers have had the time of their lives and are sorry it is nearing an end. Ministers also began to express their dismay at the attitude of the press, in terms not dissimilar to those in the Herald. So Winston Churchill, having taken over as Secretary of State for War on the 10th of January 1919, presented a memorandum to the War Cabinet uh, four days later. In it, he indicated that the press had been allowed to run wild on the subject of demobilisation and that statements had been made with no foundation in fact. He believed that, quote, influential or an influential part of the press, notably the Daily Mail, Daily Express and other cheap newspapers which circulate widely in the army, had published articles abusing the military authorities and had specifically undermined discipline as a result. Clearly, now that the armistice had been signed, the press was no longer playing to the fiddle of Lloyd George and his government, as they had for most of the war. The press barons, Lords Beaverbrook and Northcliffe, who had directed propaganda for much of the war, would have to come back into line and support the government until a new plan could be devised. Within days of his cabinet memorandum, Churchill presented a new scheme, one which he had devised with the help of Wilson and Haig. On the 17th of January, the decision was made. All men who had listed in 1914 and 1915 would be demobilised as soon as transport was available to bring them home, a total of 2.2 million men. Furthermore, all men who had joined the army after the 1st of January 1916 would be retained as part of the Army of Occupation. In explaining the new scheme to Lloyd George, who was in Paris, Churchill stated that quote under the existing scheme the discipline of the whole army is being rotted. I am very anxious about the state of the army both in France and at home. He believed that statements made by Lord George had done much to calm the situation and that newspapers quote had seen the red light and have been trying to help as much as possible instead of exciting discontent. Both Lloyd George and Andrew Bonalore initially rejected the new scheme, especially because so many men would have to be retained and that conscription uh, would have to remain in place, a thorny issue and one which would need a little bit of work in order to convince the public uh, of its necessity. Churchill, Wilson and Haig then travelled to Paris on the 23rd of January and finally managed to convince Lloyd George. The next hurdle was to convince the public uh, that this was the correct course of action uh, to take. So the best way to achieve this aim was to obtain the support of the press. On the same day that the scheme was presented to the War Cabinet, under a pledge of secrecy, Churchill sent full details of it to Lord Northcliffe. In explaining it, he stated that he did not fear the course of such a policy, quote, provided that a strong lead is given and that the reasons which make each step necessary are fully and frankly explained. Upon receiving these details, Northcliffe instructed his editors to publicise and to support the scheme, stating that, all my newspapers will do exactly what you wish on the subject. Churchill also met with other correspondents, uh, newspaper correspondents in the last days of January. After that meeting, he wrote to Lloyd George on the 29th of January, the newspaper men took it all like lambs. <clears throat> the new scheme was indeed launched on the 30th of January, and true to the word of Northcliffe, the Daily Mail wholeheartedly supported it stating, quote, nothing has been more honourable to our soldiers than the way in which they have received the new scheme and the evidence of patience and patriotism which they are giving after their magnificent conduct on the battlefield. Moreover, that the new priority scheme, based on length of service, satisfied the soldiers' instinctive respect for fairness. If soldiers were happy with the new scheme, then how could the public complain? But notwithstanding the, the new scheme, on Monday the 27th of January, so a few days before, a major incident occurred at Calais involving the Army Service Corps and the Army Ordnance Corps. These men organised a strike, complaining about their long working hours and the poor conditions in the camps. This had merged with the frustration over the slow pace of demobilisation. A seditious, a seditious speech sorry, was made by a private He was arrested, and from then on, things spiralled out of control. The men went out on parade, and when the sergeant major gave the order to move, not a single soldier did, uh, as there were rumours that the arrested private had been shot. These rumours were unfounded, and the soldier uh, in question was eventually requisitioned by the striking men, uh, who, despite numerous discussions with high-ranking officers, didn't waver in their position. The location of this, the disturbance in this case was significant because thousands of men passed through uh, the camps in, in a nearby Calais en route to and from um, the front after periods of leave in Britain. And these men were then brought face to face with the, de- the demands of these strikers. Many soon joined them, and, soon, and, me- and also some even attempted to commandeer boats back to England. The men elected a committee, headed headed mainly by trade unionists, and continued their collective disobedience. Haig, now anxious that things didn't get further out of control, directed General Bing, who was the commander at Calais, to quell the disturbances at all cost if they spread to the town itself. Quote, Discipline must be maintained, and rioters, if they cannot be arrested, must be shot those men who have returned from leave have no ground for complaint and appear to have been led astray by Bolshevik agitators. Eventually, on the morning of the 30th of January, men from 105th Brigade, 35th Division entered the camp and surrounded the tents and huts. The men were told that those who wished to break off the strike could do so with no repercussions. The four-man committee then addressed the men and urged them to continue their strike, but they were And ignored essentially. These men were then arrested as they tried to discourage defectors um, from the strike. So, this strike was over and, and relatively quickly without having to resort to violence. Machine gun companies had actually been brought up to surround the camp and were even located in the camp offices ready to fire upon the strikers. What the strike demonstrates is how quickly discipline could break down, though when men were removed from their own units. The military authorities were shaken by these events, especially because they occurred at the same time as other major strikes across um, the UK. But Churchill remained of the opinion that the unrest had occurred as a hangover from the previous demobilization scheme. Smaller demonstrations continue to take place, though, uh, especially in service units and those involved in the lines of communication. Much of the blame for these incidents were attributed to the Herald League. Um, its political organ was the Daily Herald, the newspaper, and also the sailors, uh, Sorry, the Soldiers Union most associated with the Daily Herald, the Sailors, Soldiers and Airmen's Union. The Daily Herald remained most aloof of the establishment and continued to print articles critical of the authorities in their demobilisation plans. The government were quick to act upon uh, this perceived threat, especially when it got wind of the fact that the Herald League wished to attempt to get soldiers who had joined the forces as part of the Derby scheme to demobilise themselves in May 1919, six months after the end of hostilities. By July, many soldiers also feared the possibility of being sent to Russia as part of the British Army's expedition there, and unrest once more increased. Throughout the middle of 1919, there are many examples of a backlash towards the the trade union movement in, in this respect, and particularly their attempts to enlist support of serving and from serving soldiers. Intelligence reports from across the country consistently pointed to the fact that despite their best attempts, ex-servicemen unions had no success in attracting honorary members. So as a serving soldier, you couldn't be part of a member, but you could join a union as an honorary member. A man in the Royal Army Service Corps had visited a camp to enlist uh, support in the um, Sailors, Soldiers and Airmen's Union in late May, but was forced to retire as a result of the reception he had met. Um, the sort of negative reception he had met. Even those who had already been discharged and were active members of soldiers' unions appear to have been resolute in their attitude towards the Labour movement. Though a less extreme organisation, members of the National Federation of Discharged and Demobilised Sailors and and Soldiers, which had even put up candidates in the uh, 1918 general election, rejected calls uh, at its conference to ally itself to a socialist political body the intelligence summary indicated that quote it is satisfactory that the results of the conference point to the fact that the ex-servicemen desire to stand alone and by a majority in every case have testified their determination to refuse to become the tools of unprincipled and professional agitators it went on to conclude that quote the attitude of the soldier is improving every day despite the attempt by agitators to cajole and flatter him to become disloyal to his sovereign and, and the tool of revolutionaries as represented by the Herald League, the soldier is realising that these people are not his friends but rather his enemies. Throughout the summer, uh, throughout the summer though, incidents continue to take place which risk the improving state of discipline. Once again, soldiers refused to embark for overseas at Dover and over 1,800 men mutinied at the Eastern Command Labour Centre at Sutton. The latter were also concerned that they were to be be sent overseas. In both of these cases, it would seem that there was still concern that they would be sent to Russia. In August, 17 men of the 3rd West uh, Yorkshire Regiment were sentenced by court-martial to nine months' imprisonment with hard labour. In July, they had refused to obey an order to parade in fighting equipment. They claimed that they had taken uh, to heart an expression used by the company Sergeant Major in passing that order, and that now peace was declared, they considered themselves as civilians. When questioned about the incident, the Sergeant Major denied using certain expressions, stating that he had not, in fact, called them bastards. He had actually called them a lot of Bolshevists. So this uh, latest spate prompted one newspaper editorial to declare the following, and I will be finishing in a moment, don't worry. So, quote, The recurrence of incidents that indicate the presence in the army of a good deal of unrest is much to be regretted. I think there is a tendency to exaggerate the bulk, as well as to misrepresent the character of the grievances which led some soldiers to demonstrate in a manner not consistent with discipline the British soldier is no Bolshevik, and now that he has every reason to believe that there is no intention to treat him other than fairly in the matters as to which he has felt uneasy. (coughs) So just to very, very briefly conclude. Reporting in August 1919, Churchill concluded, how foolish to suppose that the armies, which took more than four years to spread about all over the world, could be brought home again by a wave of the wand. By this time, it was becoming clear that Bolshevism was no threat in the armed forces. Though discipline broke down, it had more to do with the perceived unjust nature of the demobilisation scheme and the fact that for some, the notions of, this, sort of these notions of self-sacrifice and of patriotism no longer held relevance as a means to maintain order, despite some attempts by soldiers' unions and other organisations to mobilise support for their cause. On the 17th of October 1919, Churchill finally declared that demobilisation was complete. He reported that in the 11 months since the armistice, an average of 10,000 men had been discharged every day. It was true to say, he said, that the army had melted away. Thank you very much.